Take your Bible and open with me to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Today we are in chapter 2. My wife asked me earlier in the week, are we finishing chapter 2 or are we beginning chapter 3? I said no. Uh, (laughs) We're continuing in chapter 2. Next week, Lord willing, we will both finish chapter 2 and begin chapter 3. But today we are looking at verses 13 to 16. Paul does a very Pauline thing in these verses. He has been talking about his ministry among the church in Thessalonia, uh, and, uh, and he makes a digression. Uh, he takes an, an almost uh, prophetic rabbit trail to say something else, uh, led by his thankfulness to the Lord for the way that he is at work in the church there. And uh, so we are going to see that rabbit trail and walk with Paul through it today. If you are just joining us today, if you're visiting, we are going through this letter Uh, section by section, uh, not necessarily word by word, but in in small enough chunks that we can uh, wrap our minds around it. And today in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, reading verses 13 through 16. Before we read this word, let's go to the Lord together and seek his blessing on our study. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that as we read, you would give the power of your Holy Spirit, that we should be hearers and doers of it. We pray, O Lord, that you would enlighten our minds and quicken our wills, that we should embrace Jesus Christ, that your word would be at work in us, that we would accept it for what it truly is, the word of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 beginning to read in verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we read it together. Stop me if you have heard this one already. But a Christian priest, a Jewish rabbi, and a Muslim imam walk into a church. Rob's heard it. Yeah. It sounds like the beginning of a very bad joke, Uh, but actually, pretty soon in Berlin, it is going to be a reality. That's because last summer, contractors laid the cornerstone of a new building that they are calling the House of One. It is a multi-faith worship center where a Christian church, a Jewish synagogue, and a Muslim mosque will be joined under one roof connected by a central hall intended to be a place to foster dialogue and an understanding between the world's three great monotheistic faiths. The building is being built directly on top of the foundation of a 13th century Christian church 
that was ruined during World War II. And according to the charter, the promise of the project is, as they say, to offer the city of Berlin, quote, a landmark representing the engagement between the religions and the city that is free from bias and prejudice. And of course, a place without bias and prejudice is a good thing. But a place without distinction is something else entirely. Ultimately, that's the problem with Berlin's House of One. It's the same problem that shows up in all of the other uh, multi-faith initiatives that are always marketed as opportunities for inclusivity and dialogue and understanding. That's how they come to us. But the problem is with all of them, just as with the House of One, is that in presenting each of these religions as equally viable, they also present each of these religions as equally useless. The architecture in Berlin will bear that out. When the building is complete, you may walk into the main entrance on the bottom floor, and then you can choose your own adventure. You can pick the denomination and the church that appeals to you. You can decide which one is right. You can uh, go in the direction of your personal favorite. You make the decision who and how to worship. You get a vote in which faith is true. True for you, at least. Maybe not true for somebody else, perhaps. This isn't a new concept, right? The house of one is not a new concept, especially in New England, where most of the churches in the center of towns, which used to be Protestant, pilgrim, uh, Puritan churches, are now proudly declaring that they are both Unitarian and Universalist, a house of one. Like the house of one, these churches are standing atop the foundations of some long-dead faithful congregation. Like the House of One, they have thrown off the restraints of Christian exclusivism. I think perhaps most of all, like the House of One, they have exchanged the God who speaks for the God who makes suggestions. The God who, if he has anything at all to say to humanity, he gives us little snippets and tips. Ways to live a, a rich religious life without stepping on anybody else's toes, you know. What he does not give, at least in these churches and in the house of one, what he does not give is the word that says, thus saith the Lord. That's why one journalist summarized this project in Berlin by saying that the house of one might be the ultimate rejection of divine inspiration. That's the question at the foundation, isn't it? The question is, has God revealed himself? Has he told us anything at all about who he is and how we ought to worship him? Because if he has, our faith cannot be a choose-your-own-adventure story. In these verses, Paul is rejoicing because the church in Thessalonica was building their faith on the right foundation. They'd received the gospel... They'd accepted it as the very word of God. They received it. They accepted it. They were willing to suffer to hold fast to it, even if it meant suffering. It was another sign that God was at work in Thessalonica, and it ought to be a sign that God is at work here among us as well. Today, from this text, I want to talk to you about the blessing of believing God's word. 
I also want to talk to you about the sin of rejecting God's word. So those are going to be our two points. The blessing of believing God's word and the sin of rejecting it. As we think about this blessing, you notice that in these verses, Paul is returning to some of the themes that he's already mentioned before in the letter. You uh, visitors might not get that, but there are themes here of thanksgiving and themes of affliction. There's a theme here of faithfully imitating the lives of other believers who have gone before, who have shown us the way to walk and the way to live as believers in Christ. Especially in verse 13, Paul is almost rephrasing what he's already said back in chapter 1, verse 5. Take a look back there. There he said, our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Chapter 2, verse 13, here's a very similar statement. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is. The word of God, which is at work in you believers. Do you see that connection? Paul said first that the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, came not just in word, but with power and conviction by the Holy Spirit. Now he's saying that when the word of God came, the people accepted it for what it really is. God himself is speaking to humanity. He's revealing himself and what he's doing in the sight of the nations. Paul says this word is at work in you who believe. Paul is talking about the fortifying effects of the Word of God. That's the kind of language that that I think used to be printed on boxes of cereal that everybody knew you shouldn't be eating, right? It reminds you of those old cartoons with Calvin and Hobbes, and there sits Calvin with his uh, his tiger friend eating his favorite cereal, chocolate-frosted sugar bombs. Everybody knows you shouldn't be eating it. And and Hobbes can't get through a second bowl. And he says, well, what's wrong? You're not eating your cereal. And Hobbes says something like, this is pure sugar. But Calvin says, it's fortified. (laughs) It's fortified with 11 vitamins and minerals. What does that mean? It means there's no nutritional value in this. And so they put something else in there so that the parents will bring it home. It means we put something good in something that had nothing good in it to begin with. And Paul is saying God's word is at work among you. He's telling us that God's word is fortifying us. That's what God's word does. He's pouring his truth, believers, into your heart. Through his word, he's giving you spiritual wisdom. He's giving you conviction. He's giving you hope that you don't have in yourselves to begin with. And this is the work of God. This isn't something that comes from you, Paul is saying. This is something that's given to you. And it's something worth thanking God for. Maybe you've never considered it that way. Maybe you've been a believer for a very long time. Maybe you were raised in the church, and this is all you know. And so for you, to to your mind, there is nothing more natural than picking up your Bible and starting your day with your cup of coffee and opening your Bible and realizing that God himself is speaking in these pages. Nothing more natural for you, because that's the the air that you live and breathe. In fact, you don't even understand how people can open a Bible and come to any other conclusion. It doesn't make sense. How can it be that so many people open the Bible and it seems to have no effect on them? For good or for ill, it seems like they're immune to it. It just bounces off. They, They can live their whole lives and not care what God's Word has to teach them. 
it seems strange to you. It seems like, you know, evangelism must be pretty simple. All you have to do to make believers out of unbelievers is to set them down in front of John 3.16 and just make sure that they explain how the pieces fit together. Sometimes faith happens like that, by the way. Sometimes it's just that quick. But we need to remember that even when it does happen like that, there's nothing natural about that at all. What did Paul say to the Corinthians when he wrote to them? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He went on, he said, the natural person is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He's talking about natural man, natural woman, all of us in our fallen condition, humanity in the sinfulness and the hardness of our heart. In fact, that's a good picture for what natural man does with God's word. We respond to it the way that Pharaoh responded to Moses. Remember what Pharaoh said, chapter 5 of Exodus, verse 2. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not. That's how a natural man responds to the word of God with rejection. Paul had seen it. Over and over again, he'd seen it. It had become one of these patterns of his ministry. He went out with his friends, people like Silas, people like Timothy, and they preached the gospel to everybody that would listen. They preached Jesus Christ and him crucified to Jews and to Greeks. They told them about Jesus, the eternal Son of God. They told them how he had come into the world just as his prophets had foretold hundreds of years beforehand. They told them how he laid down his life as a sacrifice for sinners. They told them how he bled and died as God's suffering servant. They told people how Jesus had been raised again from the dead on the third day and how through faith in this resurrected Jesus, men and women can be forgiven of their sins and have fellowship with God the Father. They preached the word of God. They preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what happened? Natural man scoffed. Some people said, that's foolish. Some people said, that's the kind of irrational nonsense that they don't need to pay attention to. Other people said, that's weakness. That's the kind of fairy tale thing that desperate people are attracted to. The gospel of Jesus went out, natural men and natural women made all of their natural excuses why this gospel has no right to lay any claim on their faith or their future. Did it happen because Paul wasn't very good at explaining things? Did it happen because he didn't know how to put the pieces of the gospel together in a way that made sense in different contexts? Did it happen because Paul was offering something that nobody needs? No. John Calvin says, the reason that the word of God is regarded by many with such contempt arises from this, that they do not consider that they have to do with God. They don't believe that they're accountable to him. They don't believe that he is able to speak into the realm of time and space and humanity where we find ourselves. In fact, this is how it happens when God's word goes forth. It goes forth as a threat 
to our beloved sense of autonomy. That's a fearful thing. If the Lord of all creation can, can speak his promises and make his demands over your life, well then you are bound to follow him rather than yourself. And we don't want to follow him rather than ourselves. We like our autonomy. So natural man present, preserves his sense of self-rule by falling back on that first trick that we learned in the garden. Skepticism. God's word goes forth, and we ask the question that the serpent taught us. Did God really say? Paul had seen it. Then again, sometimes it happens the way it happened in Thessalonica. Sometimes it happens the way it happened among you who believe here at Redeemer. That the Lord sent forth his powerful word and he joins it with his life-giving spirit. Sometimes the gospel of Christ goes forth and God gives men and women spiritual eyes to discern the things of the spirit of God. Sometimes he gives them believing hearts. He enables them to hold fast to the word, to receive it, to accept it. He gives faith to see it for what it really is, the word of God. And that means that the first blessing of believing God's word is believing God's word. Right? Receiving it. Accepting it. Being convinced that God himself is speaking through the words of his apostles and his prophets. There are other blessings. And they all come after this first blessing of actually believing it. Lots of blessings to God's word. Lots of ways that it fortifies our faith. Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord, of, of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God's word is a blessing. Manifold blessings to his people. A light for our feet, a lamp for our path, the only infallible rule of faith and practice. There are many blessings that come when we believe in God's word, but it all begins when we experience the blessing of actually believing it. It all begins when the Holy Spirit himself works faith into the lives of God's people. Did you notice the confession that we've been proclaiming together for the month of October, those of you who are with us regularly? We've already heard it, we've already read it from the Westminster Shorter Catechism concerning the doctrine of effectual calling. And if you heard it, did you hear, did you think about the words that you were confessing together with God's people? Let's uh, read the answer to the, uh, the last question, 31, to, to effectual calling. It says, effectual calling, and pay attention to the participles, by the way. Those are the I-N-G words. What's this Holy Spirit doing and how does he do it? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. What we are confessing is that in order to enable us to take God at his word, the Holy Spirit overcomes our natural, sinful, knee-jerk reaction against what God has said to humanity. Instead, he convinces us that what God says about our sin is true. The Holy Spirit convinces us that what he's told us about our Savior is believable. 
And he convinces us and he enables us to believe the word of the gospel that he's spoken to our souls. He is the one who fortifies his people through his word. Calvin says if we read that verse and we wonder if we're talking about the power of the word or the power of God, he says it all comes to the same in the end. God himself, by his Holy Spirit, working through his word to sink it deep into the hearts of those who believe. He's the one who's fortifying his people. He's the one who's at work in you who believe. So Paul says, this is the sort of thing worth thanking God for. It means the application of this first point is twofold. First, if you have believed in the word of God, if you have trusted in Christ Jesus, your Savior, who has been proclaimed to you in word or in preaching or however you heard it, if you have believed in the word of God, you ought to be thanking him and praising him. I know that many of you are, and I don't mean uh, to be hectoring or, or, or somehow downhearted uh, or saying you're not doing it enough. I'm just saying, shouldn't we thank the Lord more and more and more? I don't mean just to sort of come into church and sing the songs when you're here kind of thanking the Lord. I mean, is thanksgiving a regular part of your daily personal prayer life? You come to the Lord merely overburdened with all the things you have to do and all the things you need, or do you come to him and say, Lord, remind me what you have done for me. Thank you, Lord, for giving your word, for speaking through your holy apostles and prophets. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for enlightening my mind and enlightening my heart to believe in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for sending your apostles with the gospel into the world to establish your church that has had a ministry down through the ages from Thessalonica all the way to Concord and all over the world. Thank you, Jesus, for working in my heart and the hearts of my brothers and sisters here in my church to make us to believe you. Do you pray like that? If you don't, maybe it's time to start. Secondly, if you have never believed God's word, if you've never accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ for what it truly is, maybe it's time to pray like that. Maybe it's time to ask the Lord to open your eyes, to ask him to do the work that only he can do. Studying God's word is important. In fact, when Paul left Thessalonica, he went to another place called Berea. And Luke tells us in the, gospel, in the, in the book of Acts, that those Jews who were in Berea were more noble than those who were in Thessalonica because after receiving the word, they studied diligently. They searched the scriptures day by day to see if this was really true. I'm not talking about a sort of mystical mumbo-jumbo where you put your mind on a shelf and just blindly believe whatever's being taught to you. No, no, study is important. You can study the word. You can examine the word. You can bring your doubts and your questions to the gospel of Christ. You can plumb the depths of your human capacity to evaluate the truthfulness of what you read when you open the Bible, but it will only get you so far. Because what you need is a work of God's spirit, so ask him to do what only he can do for you. Ask the Lord to fortify your faith. Ask him to persuade you, to enable you to embrace Jesus Christ. This is a promise and an application point for believers too, by the way. 
We want to be growing in the Lord, don't we? Shouldn't we be asking for the same thing over and over again when our doubts arise, when those, those little thoughts whisper somewhere in the back of our souls? Maybe they only show up every once in a while. Don't we need to go to the Lord over and over again and say, help me to believe and receive your word for what it really is? Here's the application. Ask the Lord for the blessing of believing his word. Perhaps more to the point, the second point. Ask the Lord to save you from the sin of rejecting his word. Now, the focus here with the rest of our text, beginning in verse 14, Paul moves from praising the Lord for this blessing of faith to pronouncing a judgment on persistent unbelief. This is also a theme that he's already brought up before. He's returning to resurface things from earlier in the letter. Chapter 1, Paul said the, Thess the Thessalonians, excuse, I'm going to fumble over that for months. Paul said that the Thessalonians received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He said they'd become imitators of himself and of the Lord through their persecutions. Now in verse 14, he expands on that. We won't open up the whole issue all over again because we have talked about this. But it's enough for us to recognize uh, that when the natural man rejects the word of God, very often what happens is that it is rejected as something that is offensive and not merely something that is unwanted. Do you understand the difference? Right, very often the gospel becomes something to be silenced. becomes something to be eliminated by, by violence if necessary, rather than merely ignored. It takes various forms and various times, various places. Today, re rejection and unbelief in our culture still flies under this cultural banner of tolerance and diversity. What about for our brothers and sisters that we prayed for in Syria? Well, there, rejection operates on the level of fatwas. It operates on the level of a holy war, bombing churches and making orphans out of Christian children. Paul was telling the Thessalonians here that the opposition they're beginning to face because of their faith is trending more towards Syria than it does toward America. He says, they became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For they suffered the same things from their own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And then he goes on to list some of the sufferings that he has in mind. And this is where the text starts to get difficult for us. Not because of a problem in the text, not because of some uh, footnote issue with the original Greek or, or, or translating the words per se. Then the text starts to get difficult for how texts like this have been handled in the past. Verse 15, uh, Paul says the Jews were the ones who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Maybe you can already spot the problem. Right, it, it is that old charge, that accusation that Paul is an anti-Semite. There go those Christians, says the cliches. There go those Christians blaming the Jewish people for all of their problems. There goes the New Testament heaping hatred on the sons of Abraham. There goes the Apostle Paul calling down violence and judgment upon the entire Jewish nation. And actually, sadly, many of the critics of Scripture at this point will take 
these words or words like them from Paul as a reason for rejecting the word of God even further. Because they'll say, well, you can tell, can't you, by reading these words that, that this is immoral. That Paul is engaging in this anti-Semitic diatribe. This is a crime against humanity. And they'll say that on that basis, the words of the New Testament cannot possibly be the words of God. They must only be the words of a fallible man who got many things wrong, like his feeling about the Jewish nation. And that would be a pretty serious charge if it were true. So maybe, maybe we have to start there. Perhaps we need to acknowledge here that, that throughout the centuries of the Christian church, many professing believers have mishandled texts just like this one. And they've done it in order to excuse hatred and violence against the Jewish people. John Stott says that no Christian can read the long history of anti-Judaism in the church without feeling profoundly ashamed. And we ought to, I think. That shame extends to, to many even of our, uh, our Christian heroes, our Reformation Day heroes, who, who use texts like these in some of their writings to, uh, to approve of and to advocate for violence against Jewish people and burning down their synagogues and confiscating their property. So perhaps we ought to acknowledge, and we do, that anti-Semitism is the sort of thing that the church ought to be ashamed of. Perhaps we should acknowledge that it is a grave sin. It's a form of what our larger society today likes to call racism, but what the Bible far more accurately calls the sin of partiality. Same thing, different terminology. It is the sin of, of judging other people or hating other people simply based on their ethnic heritage, their background. And such sins have no place in the life of the believer. But the further question to be asked is, is that actually what Paul is doing here? Does the charge of anti-Semitism stick to the apostle? The answer is an emphatic no. Right? Paul didn't hate the Jewish people. Paul loved the Jewish people. Paul was a Jew himself, of course, and if the, uh, if the conduct of his ministry is any indication, he was the pretty committed Jewish person himself. Where is it that Paul went when he took the gospel to each new city where he carried the gospel? Where did he start with his evangelism ministry? He always started in the synagogue, if there was one, or he went to the place of prayer where the Jews would gather. He always began by evangelizing the Jewish people. And it didn't matter if in a place like Philippi, it ended up with him being beaten and stripped and thrown into prison because of his evangelism. When he went to the next place, he started over again in the synagogue. He was persistent in his evangelism to the Jewish people. He loved the Jewish people. Paul longed for his fellow Jews to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He writes late in his ministry in Romans 9 and Romans 10, he says that his heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He says in chapter 9 that he could even wish that he were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh. Folks, I don't know if I love anyone enough to pray that I would be damned so that somebody else could be saved. But Paul did. Paul loved the Jewish people like that. No, Paul 
was not being anti-Semitic. He did not write these words as a racist. He wrote these words as a prophet. Listen to how Stephen says it, the close of his sermon in Jerusalem before the Sanhedrin. This is Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. See if you can hear any parallels here. Stephen said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound anything like what Paul is writing here in 1 Thessalonians? Does it sound anything like what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse? O oh, Jerusalem! Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Does that sound familiar? Does it sound like any of the minor prophets that we studied together this summer? Does it sound like the word that we heard this morning from Jeremiah chapter 5? This people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? You see, if Paul was anti-Semitic, then Jesus was anti-Semitic. And if the New Testament is anti-Semitic, then the Old Testament is anti-Semitic as well. No, but Paul wasn't anti-Semitic. Paul was anti-sin. He was specifically against the sin of rejecting the gospel that had been revealed in Jesus Christ. Notice what he says here. He puts his finger on the unbelief of their sin-hardened hearts. These are the people who rejected God's word and rejected God's Savior, he says. And then as Paul went out proclaiming Jesus, they rejected Christ's apostles. They rejected efforts to preach the gospel so that it could go about the nations and bring salvation for those who were outside the nation of Israel. Paul says that because of their persistent, willful rejection of God's word, they had filled up the measure of their sins. He says that the wrath of God has come upon them at last. And that's the real issue at stake in these verses. It's not some hidden hatred that Paul might have that will throw us off the trail if we want to accept God's word as what it really is. It's, it's not about his feelings about the Jews. This is about the judgment of God that falls everywhere that the gospel of Jesus Christ is silenced or vilified or rejected or merely ignored. Don't forget, this was a sin that was happening not just among the Jewish people. It was happening among the Gentiles in Thessalonica as well. He says, you're suffering the same things. This pattern of opposition to the gospel as it goes into the world is repeated. So long as there are natural men to oppose the gospel, it will be opposed. It will be rejected. The Thessalonians were already suffering the same things from their countrymen. The rejection of the gospel expanded into the nations just as quickly as Christ could be preached among them. The same pattern still continues today. Sure, for us, it shows up under this, this banner of tolerance, right? 
this banner of diversity in Berlin in the House of One, it shows up under a single roof where the religions are squashed and squeezed into a single indiscernible congregation. In places like China or in North Korea, it shows up in state surveillance and labor camps. But wherever it shows up, whatever outward form it takes, it receives the same verdict from the Lord. He calls it sin. He calls it rebellion. He calls it rejection. And he tells us very clearly in his word that in the end it leads to judgment. Let's not mince words here, folks. Verse 16, you notice this, this mention of salvation. And you men- notice this mention of wrath. He says, they oppose mankind, they displease God by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. That's the work of God among those who believe. Salvation, eternal salvation, forgiveness of sins and fellowship with the Father and a table at the marriage supper of the Lamb, sitting around his throne, beholding him as he is, being made and renewed in the likeness of his glorified body. That's what he means when he says salvation. That's what he means when he says the word is at work, and you who believe it's at work for salvation. He also talks about the wrath that's coming at last, and this is an eternal destiny as well. It is as separate and as different as we could ever imagine two things being. One eternity in the presence of the Lord and enjoying his pleasure and his love and his care. Others separated from his love and his care forever, but not separated from his wrath. Not separated from his just judgment. Because those who reject him in this life will be rejected forever. So Paul says, God's wrath has come upon them at last, or, or you might notice it says, to the uttermost, continually, forever. These are eternal realities that Paul is talking about here, and it's the difference between believing the word of God and rejecting the word of God. It's the difference between salvation and wrath. It's the difference between life and eternal death. I ended the first point with two words of application, and I'll end the second point with the same two. The takeaway is that if the Lord has given you the blessing of believing his word, you ought to give him praise. And the application is that if you are still rejecting the word of the Lord, you ought to ask for this blessing. Some of you have been around this for a very long time, and you've heard this for a very long time, and you're still waiting. Some of you are pretty new. It doesn't matter where you are, how long you've been connected to it, you can ask today. You can trust today. Don't put it off for one more Sunday. Don't wait until maybe something else will happen. You'll see some other spark or or sparkle of something that you didn't notice before. Ask today. Lord, give me that blessing to believe your word. Give me life in Jesus Christ. And then that word of God will be at work in you as you believe. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we pray that you would be at work in us. You, by your spirit, would convince and enlighten and enable and persuade. Draw your people out of the world and make us believers in you and give us life by Jesus' name, we pray in his name. Amen.